It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Government vs. Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. I'm really excited about this week's episode because it's taken me a while to find a time to talk to Nanjala Niyabola. Nanjala is a Kenyan writer, humanitarian advocate and political analyst. Her book Digital Democracy and Analog Politics looks at how the internet era is transforming politics in Kenya, but I think it brings a really important perspective for those of us who have been having conversations about disinformation and fake news in the UK or the United States. She joined me down the line via Skype from Nairobi, so the sound's not up to the usual studio quality, but please don't let that put you off the conversation, which I think brings a really vital perspective. And Angela, how would you like me to introduce you? Um, I am a writer and a political analyst. I'm based in Nairobi, and uh, about the book, a uh, writer of um, Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Politics in Kenya. And did you grow up in Nairobi? Yes. When did you first kind of realise politics going on around you? Uh, probably when I was about seven. The first political event, major event that I was aware of was the end of apartheid in South Africa. Mm. Um, and the, the Rwandan genocide, because they happened sort of within three months of each other. But I grew up in an authoritarian state, so um, politics was kind of just always around us. And the way we occupied space and the way we had to navigate silence and censorship. and But I think the thing that I most keenly remember is um, when I was about six and a half, seven years old, the Rwanda genocide and the end of apartheid in South Africa. And so that was international politics or, or, or politics in wider Africa rather than politics at home. And is it fair to say that Kenya has become less authoritarian since the early 90s? Yes. I mean, that's a, that's a fair statement. It's not perfect. It's not ideal. There's a lot of regression that's been happening over the last uh, 10 years. But yeah, that's a fair statement. There has definitely been opening up of space between 2000, maybe between 1997 and 2007. I would say the space opened up quite a bit. To go back to the previous question, I think I would say um, everything that happened in Kenya, because again, when you grew up in an authoritarian state, it's everywhere. Mm. It's in the fear of your neighbors. It's in the fear of walking down certain streets because you might get arrested. It's in, you know, having to stand still at the same time every day so the flag could be lowered. So you don't really think about it. It just becomes this background hum in your life. But something like the end of apartheid, which had 
always again been in the back because we had the struggle songs and we had the free Nelson Mandela sort of as a constant. Um, and then suddenly it's like all of the adults around you are overcome by the transition. You, it's such a big shift. That's why it was more sort of maybe made more of an impression on me than what was happening in Kenya because what was happening in Kenya was so normalized, if that makes sense. It it does, and I'm I'm really conscious that your book is deliberately about Kenyan politics. So the book is digital democracies, analog politics, and I know having worked myself in sub-Saharan Africa quite a bit, that people do often generalise conversations about Africa. And you were really keen to have a conversation or write a book that's all about Kenyan politics. Can you tell me why that was? Well, it's precisely for the reason that you pointed I pointed out. It's so easy for people to make generalizations about Africa. They don't even um, second guess themselves. And yet you're talking about the second largest continent in the world. Even in the way that, for example, even if you said Europe, you would still have to qualify whether you were talking about continental Europe or Europe, including the United Kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a certain laziness, intellectual laziness that comes in making that generalization. And what you lose when you collapse in that generalization is agency and humanness and storytelling and the richness of life in various societies. Um, you end up with cardboard cutouts sort of intersecting very uh, crudely with um, ideas and, and concepts and not actual people who are shaped by specific histories, are shaped by specific political trajectories. So for me, the goal of, of writing a broad or writing a specific book, rather, was to capture the deeper contours of, of life within this one specific society, to tell the story of agency, to see African people, uh, Kenyan people first, before seeing the Kenyan state, um, to be able to tell a story about a very specific time in a way that you know, five, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, people will be able to look back on and get a flavor a sense of what it was like to be in Kenya within what I call the first digital decade, um, which is the time period covered by the book. And one of the things that I think might surprise some government versus the robots listeners, and they're generally a pretty well-educated bunch, um, is the kind of current digital landscape in Kenya. So can you, before we get into talking about the events you've just referred to, can you give us some idea of the kind of nature of digital penetration in Kenya? Well, the statistics are incredibly interesting. Um, Kenya is one of the most connected countries in the developing world, certainly in Africa. We have seen, for example, when you think about internet uptake, in countries like Ethiopia, neighboring countries, you're talking about 12.8%, uh, I believe. Um, sorry, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. But um, basically, the internet penetration rate in Kenya is estimated to be at about 88% which is incredibly high for a developing country and is definitely high for the region. It's the highest in the region. Um, the vast majority are under 18. The vast majority of Kenyans are under the age of 35. 60% of Kenyans are under the age of 35. So uh, it definitely the internet use skews young globally relative to the global statistics because of the way in which the, the demographics are made up. Most people who are connecting on the internet to the internet in Kenya, only 12.8% of Kenyans um, are doing so on their or computers. Most people who are connecting are connecting on their phones, on their smartphones. And so smartphone use is actually quite high. 
um, and talking about social media, in the last five years, you see an exponential uptick, but particularly of WhatsApp. Um, part of this is that WhatsApp is often sold as a default app that you get on the phone now because of the deals that Facebook is cutting mm-hmm. with various mobile providers, um, especially Barty Airtel, which is one of the largest. Um, and you're talking about 12 million active WhatsApp accounts by 2017, which might sound like a small number and until you think that in 2015, there were only about 2 million WhatsApp accounts. When you think about Facebook, in 2015, there were 5.3 million Facebook users in Kenya. Um, and by 2017, two years later, they were an estimated 8 million, just under, just over 8 million Kenyan Facebook accounts. So the rate at which digital technology is being taken up and the rate at which it's being penetrated, really, it's penetrated the country, makes it a significant outlier. But you also have this very deliberate push by the government to position itself, and by the current administration to position itself as a digital government. And so we've also seen an accelerated use of technology in public life, whether you're talking about the election, which was supposed to be, it was the second digital election in Africa after Namibia. Uh, It was to date the most expensive election uh, per capita um, in the world. And you're talking about the use of digital identities. All the major identity platforms in Kenya have been digitized. It's been a very painful, speaking as a citizen, but also as an analyst, it's been a very painful process to kind of force through this change without necessarily the concomitant digital awareness Mm -hmm. that people need to be able to make the process actually smoother. But it's been it's there. And so the government is trying to really institutionalize digital identities, passports, ID cards, driver's licenses, all of that uh, is gone digital. And so you have the space whereby there is a deliberate deliberate policy of incorporating technology into public life. And then you have the organic uptake that's just coming from this history of which is some of the things that I go into in the book, this history of media and the history of politics and all of that that makes Kenya particularly right for the uptake. All of these things colliding to create this unexpected outcome where this unexpected country um, finds itself, for example, as the global leader in mobile money. So there are more individual people with mobile money accounts in Bangladesh, but you know there are also more people in Bangladesh in terms of per capita, in terms of frequency of use. Kenya is the world leader and in 2016, the mobile money transactions in the country amounted to the equivalent of one third of GDP, which is by far the highest rate in the world. So it's, you know, it's safe to say that Kenya is a more digitally advanced country than I think a lot of casual observers of the world might recognise. I want to come back to asking you about how the government is trying to kind of create a digital state but before we do can we take a look at the 2017 election so perhaps you could just set out for me who the two big players were who was the election between and how did social media start to become relevant well the social media doesn't actually it doesn't begin in 2017 begins in 2013 Hmm. the first um, you know, Kenya is a mixed parliamentary presidential system, and we have elections every five years since 1992. That was the end of the one-party state. And the most successful 
presidential election, general election in that period, in a 25-year period, was the 2002 election. And the least successful by many metrics, it was the 2007 election five years later. And that has a lot to do with the political upheavals that happened in between. There was a constitutional referendum. There was a a big, um, uh, which sort of empowered the opposition because the opposition won the referendum and um, put the government on the defensive and started to sort of see a restriction of rights and freedoms that had been fought for sort of towards the end of the authoritarian regime. So everything that people had fought for between 1992 and 2002 starts to erode slowly because the government panics um, between 2005, the constitutional referendum, and 2007, the general election. Um, the general election in 2007 was, it wasn't the most violent in terms of numbers of people killed, but the violence was concentrated over a three-month period. Mm. Um, and the worst of it was the, the last week of 2007 into the first week of 2008. So voting happened in, on December 28th, and the protests against the results began almost immediately, and the reprisals began around the 30th of December. So you're talking about um, restrictions on freedom of movement, restrictions on freedom of association. Um, the entire capital city was shut down to um, non-essential traffic, which of course meant food, water, all kinds of things are not getting to the suburbs where the vast majority of people live. And um, what happened in 2007 was a political settlement that basically said, look, one big problem that we have here is people don't trust the system. And if we want people to trust the system, technology can help us do that because technology can make elections transparent. So what you need to do over the next five, 10 years is build a tech-based election system and incorporate computers into the reporting of results, the tallying of results, the collection of, of results. So 2013 sort of represents the first steps towards this. This is the next general election. And we had some of the constituencies going digital. But at the same time, in 2007, again, because of the media landscape and the reprisals and the restrictions on freedom of association, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, the online spaces, which had been very nascent at this point and primarily occupied by the diaspora, become a main source of information and a main source of conversation around what was happening in the country. And they remain these, some of the few truly open spaces, in part because the government has no idea what's happening on there, has no idea the kind of conversations that are happening on there. And um, people are able to speak freely and people are able to organize somewhat freely compared to if they had tried to do it in the physical space. So again, in 2013, social media became a cornerstone of the political conversation. By this time, however, the main political parties are aware of the power of the spaces and are aware of how important they are. I'm not going to give you the names of the parties just yet because the the other characteristic of Kenyan elections is that the main parties change every five years. But really the first social media election in Kenya was the 2013 election. That's when we had political parties investing in social media analysts and we had them investing in social media campaigning, investing in social media uh, communications. And what you had in 2017, sort of between the same two protagonists, Uhuru Kenyatta and Raila Odinga, but with different political parties at this point, there's been a reorganization of the political space again. 
was the, the culmination of these investments and these investments sort of participation, both as observers, both as ordinary people, organizing, discussing, reporting, recording, and political parties investing significant amounts of money in building online outfits. That all really, 2017 is the apogee of a process that's been sort of brewing since, arguably, since the 2005 referendum. And what were the, in 2017, is uh, Adinga and Kenyatta were the two people running for president. What were their... There were eight candidates, but those were the main Well, they two. were the two front runners that people thought had a chance of winning. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And of the two, who had the better approach to social media? Which person's tactics are the ones that people looked at and studied most closely? I really don't see a qualitative difference between what they did. I think that there was definite, honestly, from a, from a communications perspective, mm. there was a significant lack of creativity on both sides. It was the same boring message. And just because you use different colors or different backgrounds doesn't necessarily mean one is more interesting or more effective than the other. I think what we saw, though, was that because Kenyatta was the incumbent and the ruling party therefore had access to state resources, what we saw was that they invested more. And so the opposition didn't really their, their online campaign didn't really pick up until uh, about a week. So by law, campaigning has to end about four weeks before the election. The opposition online campaign didn't really start to take off until about two or three weeks, maybe a month before that deadline. Um, whereas the Jubilee administration, they had been doing it for a long time. And that is really a reflection of, of resource disparities, I would, I would say. In terms of content, honestly, it was... Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Except for the hate speech. The hate speech then sort of enters you in a different dimension because you have this covert spending, which was a little bit more difficult to track until sort of towards the end. And my understanding is that Cambridge Analytica were involved on one side, sort of using, uh, specifically engaging with data and voter data. Again, this is something that begins in 2013 and begins in 2011. The Jubilee Party, then the Jubilee Coalition, first hired Cambridge Analytica in 2011, according to reporting by Privacy International. So their engagement in 2013 was a culmination of what had already been happening in 2013 election. But the opposition also invested in a, in a Canadian analytics operation, Aristotle Incorporated, um, so they also had an analytics operation with the Odinga party. The great irony is the Jubilee administration spent a great deal of money on Cambridge Analytica, but in terms of output, again, with the caveat of the... So you have to take this in, in two layers. Mm. And this is one of the main things, the reasons why, as I argue in my book, it's really important to understand a society on its own terms. Because of the nature of the connections between social media and traditional media and power, it's not the same linear investment that you saw in the United States, for example. Mm. Investing exclusively in misinformation campaigns online doesn't necessarily generate the same outcome in Kenya as it does in the United States. One, just the sheer number of people who will see it. What makes misinformation online potent in Kenya is the connection between online and offline. 
and the ability to control uh, messaging both on traditional media and on social media. And so that's really what distinguishes what uh, the ruling party is able to do because of their almost infinite resources, relatively infinite resources, and what the opposition is able to do. The opposition is not able to create a story online and then compel the traditional media to pick up that story and to propagate that story. The opposition is not able to reach into you know, the 78% of Kenyans who use radio by amplifying a story of misinformation and mis- misinformation online. And, and then you have the question of WhatsApp. You know, WhatsApp is a prime site for the spread of misinformation. That's where a lot of the hate speech started. It starts on WhatsApp and leaps onto um, Facebook first and maybe eventually onto Twitter. WhatsApp is just not a, an interesting product in the United States. It's not even that attractive. There, there are people in Europe who use it, but in Africa, for many people in Asia, WhatsApp is the primary messaging platform in, in Brazil. And so the dynamics then become different and the investment plays out differently. We saw something we call the Real Raila campaign, which was a hate speech campaign targeted towards the Odinga sort of campaign, the ODM campaign. And uh, Privacy International or Tactical Tech established that it was conducted by an American PR firm called Harris Media. And, um, you know, the, the production value was low. Mm. The message was weak. The quality of the video was questionable at best. But because of the way it was, the connection, it was picked up by traditional media. They were reporting on it and nominally critical of it. They, they amplified it, mm. you know, in a way that many of the spaces being curated and cultivated by the opposition, they're created online, they're consumed online, they die online. They don't make that leap on tradition, traditional media and then onto the public conscious of millions and millions and more people. Um, these are some of the nuances that come from doing a country-specific study because you see these connections that, are much more potent. It's the ability to, not just to create the stories online, but to then compel the traditional media to amplify them that made hate speech in sort of financed, funded, allegedly financed, funded by the government administration particularly potent. I'm finding what you're saying fascinating because it's something that people have touched on occasionally on government versus the robots. But increasingly we're seeing in the UK political actors using media to amplify stories so it doesn't really matter to them what the media say what matters is their content and their message is there um yeah and, and that's a, that, that's something that hearing you articulate helps me see it happening in the context here in the UK more clearly just one quick question before we move on we've touched on how young the Kenyan population is and I wonder whether that instinctively do you feel that that means that Kenya might be better placed to deal with misinformation and online manipulation of politics or do you think it doesn't make that much difference so instinctively I feel like younger people witnessing it now who are more digitally savvy might be better able to spot it but I guess the opposite could also be true so there's a study that was done on U.S. populations that actually found that that is true that older people are much less digitally conscious, if you will, and have a much harder time distinguishing fake news from um, real news. Um, so at least with the U.S. Uh, market, the data confirms that that's true. 
And I suspect it would be it would be true with Kenya also. Um, you know, when you're a digital native, you know, as I said, the vast majority of people in Kenya under the age of 35, the vast majority of internet users under the age of 18, you grow up processing information differently. And you grow up processing political information especially different. These are people who don't know what it means to read the paper, don't know what it means to sit down and watch the 7 p.m. broadcast from start to finish, for the, the vast majority, that is. Don't know what it means to, you know, have to look, go to the library to look something up. And so that changes how you interact with political information, how it incorporates itself into your life, if you will. I suspect that two things are going to happen. One is a generation of digital nations who are going to be better at spotting um, fake news, yes. But the people who are producing the f- and disseminating the fake news are also going to get better at packaging. And this is really where the challenge is going to come in because we're seeing people who only consume their information, political information through websites and the people who are generating the fake news. We saw this in Kenya as well. People who are generating the fake news getting better and better at producing websites that look like the real thing. There was a, a massive hope towards the end of the election with the BBC and people had actually taken the entire header and everything and they were misrepresenting. I don't remember the exact details of it, but I do remember the BBC having to come out and say, this isn't from our website. We didn't do this reporting. This is completely made up. Mm. Um, the people who are generating the fake news are going to get better and better at it also. So it's going to be kind of like a push and pull between these two forces. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On last week's Government versus the Robots, we had somebody called Professor Amy Webb who uh, works on taking a look at technology in the future. And she was talking a lot about China and the Belt and Road Initiative. And she mm. used the phrase digital colonialism, or I used it in a question that um, was based on things she'd written. That's a phrase you use, have used as well, but I think you've got a slightly different conception when you talk about it. So can you talk about why you've written about digital colonialism? When you think about what colonialism was, uh, is, colonization is basically the process of taking over the political 
social economic space of another territory, reorganizing it for the political and economic benefit of your own home territory. The precursors of the colonial process in Africa were all private corporations, We're talking about British East Africa Trading Corporation, British South Africa Trading Corporation. And the idea was basically to reorganize life, social, political, economic life in Africa and be geared towards uh, resource extraction and resource accumulation for the benefit of the United Kingdom, for the benefit of France, Portugal, Spain, um, other parts. And so when we look at the 2017 election in Kenya, there was a study that was done that estimated that the average presidential candidate in Kenya spends 5 million shillings, which is about 50,000 US dollars on their campaign. In the same year, the Jubilee administration, according to Privacy International, spent $60,000 just on Cambridge Analytica. So you're talking about, number one, there's an extractive relationship there. There's the fact that money, and let's face it, there's a good chance that it is taxpayer money, is being taken out from Kenya towards the UK through a UK private corporation. You're talking about Harris Media, which is an American outfit. Aristotle is a Canadian outfit. You're talking about, you know, Al Ghurair, who printed ballot papers, that's an Emirati outfit. You're basically talking about international private capital inserting itself into the political process in Kenya. And when you look at what these companies actually did, it's all reorganizing. It's all a projection of power into Kenya's political space, whether you're talking about generating hate speech, you're talking about um, creating misinformation campaigns, you're talking about basically shifting political outcomes in Kenya for the economic benefit of the US, the UK, France, France, most of the infrastructure in the election, United Arab Emirates, etc. That to me is the precursor for colonial uh, for colonization. That's exactly the same pattern that we saw 150, 100 years ago. Um, these are because what come what came next? What came after this disastrous election? The period of uncertainty, the, the Western diplomats having to threaten people in order to get them to sit at the table. Um, the purpose of you know incubating this election process as it was to preserve the power of Uhuru Kenyatta because a transition would threaten the social and political interests of certain Western countries. That is colonization. That's exactly what colonization is. The violence was a big part of it. But when I think about Kenya, which was a settler colony, um, when you're talking about the violence, it wasn't the physical violence wasn't the only thing about this. It was the social, political, economic violence and the forced reorganization that really has left the most damage in the society, and that's exactly what we're going to see the more these private corporations project themselves into the political processes abroad. Mm. So it's a very interesting thought. It also strikes me, not in the same way, but a lot of the social consequences of disinformation and misinformation, I think, are being felt in Europe as well and everywhere, actually, that misinformation is being used to try and manipulate political outcomes often i agree by people with kind of corporate corporatist instincts um Mm -hmm. you talk a lot in your book about how much and you referenced it earlier on about how much investment there was by the kenyan state into technology to run elections and how that kind of let the electoral process down really we've got elections today european elections today here in the uk Mm -hmm. which are running across europe for the next three days 
Um, there's some noises about difficulty running elections here in the UK too. So there's you know wherever there's elections, there's problems. It's definitely not a problem that's unique to any one country. Um, but where Kenya's ahead of the UK, I think, in some respects, is in how it's at least putting forward legislation to put in place a framework for digital citizenship and digital identity. So in the UK, some of that's done in a piecemeal way. In Kenya, there's a much more state-centric approach. Um, And one thing I know has been really controversial is, and you'll be able to update me if this has changed, is introducing a law requiring people to give biometric and even DNA data. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. And can you just talk me through what that law requires and why it's been so controversial? Well, I mean, you frame it as being ahead and I see it as a disaster. (laughs) I can Um, understand why, uh, for sure. You know, it's interesting because identity systems in Africa, it was a British thing. Mm. It was the British colonial requirement that people like my grandfather wear a pass around their neck that had their name and their ethnic origin and blah, blah, blah. And African men, when they were in mixed race situations or in cities like Nairobi, and if you didn't have your kipande around your neck, then you could be subject to arrest, violence, beating, killing, etc. lynching. You know, there's a lot of lynching of black men who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time without that uh, degrading piece of metal around their neck. And this is part of the reason why after independence, African Kenyan women were not required to have identity cards until 1978, um, because the whole system of building that identity was tied to the colonial project and especially towards the policing of black malehood. And so the ID cards that we have today are very, it's, it's, a, it's the kipande, but sort of shrunk down to a laminated plastic card, but it still has the same information that the kipande system uh, had, which hints at the failure of decolonization and the failure to decolonize the identity system and the failure to develop a system that actually builds meaningful political identities. This is part of the reason why there is such a resistance to, I think, to building an ID system in UK, because this is something that empire does to other people. It's not something that we do to ourselves. And the psychology behind that and the sociology behind that, the rejection to me is very much tied to the idea of empire. This is, like I said, something that we do to other people. With the identity space as it stands in Kenya right now, what we saw with the election, for example, we had biometric voter registration, and so they collected your fingerprints. Our constituencies shrink down to the the maximum is 700 people. So you are located, uh, they can only have 700 voters within specific polling stations. And um, so it's pretty, like, geographically, they can narrow down your your residence to a very narrow uh, space. A ward is a very small space. And then you have your home address, your phone number, your email address, everything goes into a database. Until today, Kenya does not have a data privacy law. But the election regulations permit the Electoral Boundaries Commission to sell people's election data um, to anybody who's able to pay for it. That's how... Uh, the opposition was able to build a parallel voter tallying system. That's how different political parties were able to get contact information of various voters and call them and say, you know, why haven't you voted? Or did you vote for me? Make sure you go out and vote for me. This is not what the voter provided their information for. But because the legislative framework does not protect the user, it protects the government's interest, 
then you have this power disparity that makes all kinds of abuse possible. This is the framework in which this identity law is being passed. Mm. And the court has, there's a ruling that has basically said, you can't at this point connect DNA information to identity information, um, despite what the parliament has said. And why is that? Because we're talking about a country where the police can request the largest mobile network to hand over citizen information so that they can be arrested, and there is no oversight. There is no appeal. There's no nothing that you as a private citizen can do to challenge that. There is no recourse, right? It can all just happen because there is no legislative framework to, around, to allow that. What would happen if you gave a government like that your DNA information, your physical information, right? Especially if you are from a politically persecuted minority, of which we have many, the large uh, ethnic Somali population that is, you know, constantly persecuted. I mean, they've been rounded up and held, especially in Nairobi, in uh, open-air prisons for a one-week period because many people uh, didn't have identity cards on them when they were asked. Again, a projection of power of the state and authoritarianism of the state. These are some of the biggest structural questions that have to be answered before we we can even start having the conversation of good versus bad ID in Kenya. Mm. There is a whole philosophical, political conversation that needs to be had about why we're collecting citizen data, why we're building identity system, and can we trust these institutions to protect our data and only use it within the parameters that the law and that, you know, circumstances permit them to. I don't give my mobile phone number to the mobile company so that I can, they can hand it over to the police without my permission. That is a serious breach of trust. But there's nothing as a citizen, there's almost nothing you can do to challenge that. I should qualify my use of the phrase ahead in that I think what I mean is that the government have sat and thought about bringing in legislation specifically to address digital identity in a way that hasn't been done to the same extent here. Um, the impact of that, I don't think I would equate with necessarily progress per se. I think that goes back again to why and the history behind what an identity is and who has to carry an identity and, and what the political import of of having identity systems is. The the German identity cards were introduced in the between the interwar period, 1938, I think, no, it was after the war started, 1938. It was the Nazi government that introduced ID cards in Germany. In Italy, it was again, it was the interregnum um, between the wars that forced the authoritarian states to introduce, that the authoritarian states introduced ID cards um, in order to keep track, basically, of people. So. There's a broader political conversation about identity that needs to be had. And I think that, as I said before, the resistance to ID cards, for me as a, as a legal philosopher, the, the resistance to ID cards in the UK to me cannot be separated from the history of empire, just like it cannot be separated here in Kenya. And I think that when we start counting people, when we start organizing people in this way, historically, what has come from that? is a question that needs to be answered adequately before we build systems that make other vices possible. I'm, I'm not against the idea of ID cards. I'm not against the idea of identity systems. But I think that they're critical philosophical questions and historical questions. And this, to loop back, goes back to some of the themes in my book and some of the themes in my work, is tech needs historians and tech needs sociologists and tech needs philosophers. We need the, 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 the humanities to sort of help us build 
out these historical, social, philosophical contexts so that we don't make the same mistake you've given, twice. You've given me an irresistible uh, opportunity to plug a series of podcasts called Inside Good ID, um, which I produced with the Omidyar Network and Unfold Stories. But we talked to a range of experts around the world on digital identity um, in that series and try and get under the skin of what good ID might look like so if people are interested in digital identity specifically please do have a look at the inside good id podcast you can find the twitter handle on at good id nangela we're nearly out of time i do Hmm. want to ask you about ways in which social media has been a force for good either in kenyan politics or for you and i'm conscious that you've written about the rise of feminism and feminist activism on social media. Can you talk to me a bit about how that's worked and what's been happening? Well, it's to clarify, it's not the rise of feminism, the rise of radical feminism. And um, um, radical feminism is, is a sort of a train of political thought that has struggled to find space in the public sphere. Um, I spend a lot of time in the book theorizing, I think, inaccessible language. I agree, um, just to say I agree. <laughs> Thank you. Um, about why, how the public space looks like in Kenya so that people can get a sense of what it means to be a rad. When I get, but by the time you get the chapter on feminism, you get a sense of why it would be that radical feminists and LGBTQI organizers would have such a hard time getting heard um, and finding each other and finding constituency and building out narratives change. Um, there's an example that I give in the book about um, the Progress for Women uh, movement, the Mandalaya Wanawake movement, which is nominally the largest women's rights movement in Kenya. And the chairperson of the Mandalaya Wanawake movement goes on television. She says, you know, I'm only a feminist when I'm out and about, but when I get home, I take off my coat and my shoes and I leave my feminism at the door and I go into my house, and I'm a wife and a mother. And this framing of feminism as being diametrically opposed to you know, having a family mm. and to building a family is very much embedded in the public discourse in Kenya. And so when people discuss, you invite radical feminists into the public space, it's usually for mockery, for the purposes of mocking them or, or making fun of them or you know, degrading the, the, the idea. So what people have done online is that they've found each other. And they've built a community out of radical feminism that is teaching, is reaching out, is asking tough questions of the society, is protecting people, you know, the people who have been victims of gendered violence, is raising awareness of issues like femicide. Um, you know, since the beginning of the year, I think an estimated 20 women have been killed in very gory circumstances. One by a governor, a sitting yeah. governor, you know, stabbed his seven-month pregnant girlfriend to death. These are the kind of conversations that radical feminism is amplifying and forcing the traditional media to pay attention to. And this, again, is, as I said before, about how the connections play out and how the connection between traditional and social media plays out. This constituency is creating space for subsequent conversations that are changing the character of Kenyan identity that would not be possible if we only had the analog of the traditional media. Remember the, the Rafiki film, this LGBTQI love story that was bad. It wasn't the first LGBTQI story made in Kenya. It, it wasn't by any measure. Mm. But it was the first time that there was this social media constituency that could rally around the film and the filmmaker 
and create enough momentum that it forced, you know, a conversation to have a gay Kenyans on television, primetime television in a context in which they are not being mocked, in which they are not being derided, in which they are not being chastised. It was the first time. And we had a series of those conversations. And so by the time the ruling came down that lifted the ban for one week, by the end of that week, this was the most watched film in Kenyan history, made $30,000 at the cinema in a week. This is a in big part because of the conversations that were able to happen online of mm. people saying, hey, it's showing at the cinema, go and check it out. And the cinema is realizing that there's an opportunity to make money here and you know, more screenings, more screenings, more screenings. That's the kind of positive thing that's happening online. New communities, new ways of thinking about ourselves as Kenyan, challenging the official narrative, challenging the simplistic, developmentalist, sort of narrow idea of Kenyan identity. And it's really, really important for redefining the political space. Nanjala, I think that's a really brilliant point to end the conversation. Usually I have a last question, which is to end deliberately designed to end on a positive message but you've done it so well there thank you very much for talking to me i really appreciate it it's a conversation i've wanted to happen for a while so it's been a pleasure to have you on the show thank you so much for having me that's all from government versus the robots this week hopefully you've enjoyed the episode as ever if you've enjoyed it please do tell your friends about it you can follow us on twitter at govt underscore vs underscore robots My thanks to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.